When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Gun Company, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Institute. On this episode of the show, we're talking to Michigan grouse hunter and author of the book, Grouse Point, Ken McIntyre. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 162. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We've got a great show for you, as always. Excited to get to our conversation with our guest today, Ken McIntyre, author of the book Grouse Points. We will do so shortly. A couple of quick notes for you. Onyx Hunt, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show yet, but I do have a new discount code for listeners of the show, BSP20. That's BSP, like Birdshot Podcast, 2-0. Save you 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt. So don't forget to use that. And for Upland Institute, I do have a code. That one's going to be reserved for Patreon supporters of the show. So if you are a Patreon supporter of the show and you're interested in purchasing a course from the Upland Institute, dog training videos and how-to series from Justin McGrail and Ron Bame, send me a message over on Patreon and I will get you that code for a discount to the Upland Institute. Learn more about those films, courses, videos at uplandinstitute.com. All right, speaking of Patreon supporters, I did confirm with the winner of the December giveaway, he's headed to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp this fall, fall of 2022, John Prescott. He will be going on a hunt to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, which means this month's giveaway will still be the Onyx Elite Card. Your subscription and access to Onyx information for all 50 states, whatever they got, it's yours with Onyx Elite all right, a little bit of a longer interview today again, so I think we're going to move into that 
It was a pleasure to be joined by Ken McIntyre, author of a recently released book, Grouse Points. As I think I share in the episode, I was just cruising through Amazon, looking for books, put together a little holiday book wish list for little family tradition we have, and I happened upon Ken's book, Grouse Points. Hadn't seen it before, threw it on the list, got it. Long story short, I read the book and was eager to get in touch with Ken, see if you might be interested in coming on to the podcast. I actually had a little trouble finding Ken, but thanks to some friends over at the Rough Grouse Society, the editor over there, Brittany and Glenn Blackwood, they got me Ken's contact info. I made the connection, and Ken was happy to join me for an episode of the show. Ken is, as you'll hear in today's show, Ken is 77 years old. He's been hunting rough grouse and woodcock for a very long time, primarily in Michigan, and he's got plans to hit the woods again this fall when he will be 78 years young. Ken's got a good sense of humor about him, enjoyed many of the stories in his book. If you enjoy the conversation today, well worth a look at Ken's book, Grouse Points. There's some beautiful artwork in there, some great stories, excellent winter reading. Definitely belongs up on the shelf with all my other up and hunting and grouse-related books. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast, author of Grouse Points, Ken McIntyre. We are rolling on the Bird Shot Podcast, and I'm happy to have Ken McIntyre. Ken, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me and the listeners. It's my pleasure, Nick, to be on Bird Shot. So drop a pin on the map for us, Ken. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Well, my name is Ken McIntyre. I'm born and raised in Michigan. I I grew up in uh, uh, Port Huron, which is... uh, north of Detroit on the uh, St. Clair River as it enters into Lake Huron. Went to school there, uh, went to college and undergraduate school uh, and law school in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan. Uh, Grew up hunting uh, throughout mostly the lower peninsula but some forays as a kid into the upper peninsula. Uh, a lot of hunting in the northern part of the Michigan Thumb in Tuscola County, Huron County, St. Clair County. Uh, I grew up with bird dogs. My my dad uh, was a hunter and a bird hunter and a deer hunter and quite a fisherman. Uh, we generally always had English pointers, but we can have we had at least one black lab that I recall. Uh, my father. Uh, Trained his own dogs, and uh, he taught my brother and me uh, uh, the fundamentals of uh, bird hunting and uh, what he called the uh, the beauty of the outing. And uh, he also tried to teach us uh, uh, decent hunting manners. And so that's that's my background. Very cool, Ken McIntyre, author of Grouse Points, a book that I was uh, enjoyed reading over the last month or so. I got it around the Christmas time, as I kind of had told you, Ken. When when did this book come out? I, I think it's I don't think it's been out for very long, has let it? Me, let me look. Uh the date of publication is twenty twenty one. Okay. And it actually came out toward the uh latter part of twenty twenty one. Okay. And um it's uh, published officially by a company called uh, Tamarack Enterprises Inc., which is a company I formed. 
to handle the finances and uh, uh, the printing of the book. It's printed in the USA, I would note. Excellent. Excellent. So as, as far as grouse books go, as you well know, Ken, based on the, the uh, extensive index later on in this book, you know, a lot of, a lot of the favorite grouse books that you've read and I've read, they've been around for a long, long time. But uh, in this case, myself and the listeners, we might be ahead of the curve on grouse points. This is, this is just hitting the, hitting the shelves, so to speak. Well, I hope so. <laughs> uh, I think writing it is a lot easier than marketing it. <laughs> yes, I could, I could imagine so. As, as I mentioned to you when we were chatting earlier this week, I, I came across this book. Um, I know, now, I know from talking to some friends at the Rough Grouse Society, I believe they're going to be featuring it in an upcoming issue of the Covers magazine that may or may not be out yet. I'm not sure. I'm not, uh, not up to speed on my magazine reading at this time. But I, we were doing a little Christmas family book wish list thing. And so naturally, I went on Amazon and I think I searched grouse books or one of my usual search terms. And I came across a, a book that I hadn't seen before. And there was some lovely artwork on the front with a English setter and a rough grouse in its mouth. And I mean, the listeners will not be surprised to hear that I was pretty much sold at that point. It went on my wish list, and <laughs> fortunately somebody bought it for me and I've, I've been through it and, uh, very much, very much enjoyed it. A newer, newer book on grouse hunting. And I liked the approach you took. It was, uh, and I'll, I'll have you jump in here, but I think it was it was a, really a blend of sharing some some good strategic how to knowledge, but it was really woven throughout a bunch of anecdotes and essays and stories throughout your extensive history of chasing grouse. Am I am I on on point at all, there, Ken? I I think you uh, are. You've, you've hit the nail on the head, so to speak. To give you a little bit of background, Nick. Um, I uh, spent uh, almost 50 years as a trial lawyer. As a trial lawyer, one of the things you do in dealing with judges, juries, is you you try to tell your client's story. So I've always been in the storytelling business, whether it's addressing a court or a jury or in, in a legal brief. You want your story to be truthful but interesting. By like token, I, I've grown up with storytelling. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, after Christmas dinner or after Thanksgiving dinner, most of the kids would hang around and sit and listen to the adults talk about the exotic places they've been, like Sheboygan, Michigan, and Sini in the UP, and <laughs> stories of catching big fish and missing shots on beautiful grouse. And so that always seemed like something exotic and interesting. And uh, I just grew up with people telling stories about the outdoors and 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 and, and the, the activities that they pursued. So I've always been a storyteller here around the house. My daughter who who also is a lawyer, she kind of said, "Well, you you're you've got a lot of time in your hands. Why don't you write something about your your hunting?" And my reaction was was that I'm really not and I make this point in the in the book uh Grouse Points. Um I thought about it, and I didn't think my stories about grouse hunting per se were all that unique or particularly interesting uh, as far as, you know, the places you go, the birds you shot, and the events of the day. And then my daughter said, well, you know, why don't you concentrate on some of these outrageously funny stories, which are somewhat self-embarrassing in most instances? And uh, I started writing some of that stuff. 
And I put that together along with uh, some do's and don'ts and um, ended up with, a, with an initial crack at, at a, uh, I don't know if you call it a script or a transcript or no. manuscript. And I looked around to have someone publish it. And um, to those who are thinking about writing a book, uh, it's pretty tough going to find classic old-time publishers who will undertake the publication of a book, particularly with someone who's just a, an average hunter from uh, you know, Michigan. So then I started to think about self-publication and uh, started looking around for an editor, uh, and that helped formalize some of my thoughts. And then my wife got involved. Uh, she is a, um, a national class uh, needle arts uh, artisan. She does needlepoint, but her needlepoint doesn't look like, you know, the classic uh, God bless our home mm-hmm. pinpoint needlepoint. Yeah, I picture that. She's in a in a group of artists who are almost, their work looks almost like French Impressionism. Uh, a lot of fabrics, a lot of texture, a, a lot of three-dimensional stuff. So I was thinking of getting uh, an artist to do the artwork, and my wife said, well, why don't you think about using some of my pictures of birds and dogs that I've done in needlepoint? And also she did some in oils and some in watercolors. So that's how this all kind of came together as far as the idea, uh, moving ahead with it, and particularly the artwork. Wow, that's, that's interesting. As you say that, I did not even pick up on that, but I'm looking at the, at the book flap now, and I see that, that, is, that that's not paint, that's needlepoint work the 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 front cover yeah uh that is a needlepoint of a dog of mine his name is uh, jack ken's captain jack is his pedigree and my son t- or maybe it was uh, my brother-in-law took a photo of jack coming out of the bush on a retrieve with a grouse yep. and this was a color photo and i gave this color photo to anita Back years ago, she then prepared a, um, a, a what needlepoint people call a mat, which is the thing that they draw on it, like it's a picture, and it lays out the sketch and the colors, yep. and then she put in the needlepoint into the mat, uh, and that's framed, and it sits in my uh, my den. When we were about to um, embark on the book, we took that and a number of other works done by Anita to a professional art photographer. And he uh, photographed them, and then they're transposed into the book as color plates. Uh, on the back of the book is another striking uh, needlepoint piece of a, a, a blazing ruffed grouse flying right to left over blazing woods. It's yep. a aspen stand that is... Uh, orange and yellow and reds and greens, uh, striking and uh, very, very kind of, there's nothing subtle about it. And and that one is called, um, oh, it's called Blazing Grouse in Blazing Cover. So she did those, and then she's also over time done watercolors of almost all of my dogs. Uh, and those watercolors... And oil paints, they were also photographed, and they are color plates in the book. And then she's also done a number. There are eight color plates, 
And there are uh, approximately 20 uh, black and white sketches and drawings. Some of them are uh, tongue-in-cheek and humorous. There's one chapter in the book entitled The Stump Grouse, which is an adventure my brother and I had <laughs> in... We thought we, my brother thought he had shot a grouse. The grouse took haven in a huge, huge old white pine stump. And it's the story about how we tried to retrieve that grouse. And the, the black and white sketch is that of a huge old abandoned white pine stump with a, obviously an English setter which can only be seen from the ass up with his tail in the air and the rest of him is down in the stump. So some of these photos are, are humorous. Some of the, the, the drawings are humorous in nature. But So I, may, I, I don't want to be found guilty of bragging on my wife, but it's really it, she deserves to be bragged upon. And, and this is not an unheard of combination in the grouse book business. Uh, for those of you who um, have read the stuff by Bird Evans, you, you may recollect that a lot of the um, illustrations in uh, his books were done by his wife, Kay. Hmm. I don't think we had that in mind when we were starting. Sure. And I certainly am not intimating that I'm the next George Bird <laughs> Evans. I'm not. But this is not an unprecedented uh, duo. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um on the George Bird Evans stuff, she, Kay, I think she she did a lot of the, like they were very early doing videography and you know shooting videos a lot of their. I didn't stuff. know that. Yeah, I think I didn't so. Know that. I, I could be wrong, but I'm I'm pretty well certain on that one. No, that's honestly I gotta I'm gonna have to go back and look at all of this artwork again. It takes on a whole new meaning. I I just did not even look at it close enough. This front cover, and I guess part of that may be that. Usually when I get a book, I take that dust yeah. jacket off and put it away until I'm done with it. But, no, it's incredible. The, some of the details that she pulls in on both that first image and then the back one, like with the vegetation, there's just a lot of subtleties in there that, um, yeah, it's incredible. And it's, and it's three-dimensional. The, the grouse is actually a separate piece of needlepoint that wow. is inlaid over the background of the uh, aspen forest uh, on the back flap. I would note out of... Uh, thoroughness that one of the art pieces was not done by my wife and that was uh, a color plate uh, number eight which was done by uh, a famous michigan grouse artist jim foot yes i recall and that. Uh, that is a uh, uh an oil painting that i bought from uh, jim foot's wife after he passed away and it, and it has two grouse in a cedar swamp uh, on a very green, almost velvet-like hill. And uh, I've named this one internally at my house. I call it, How You Doin'. Um, <laughs> I, would have to, I would have to take a cruise through my, maybe my basement and my closets. I don't know that I own anything by Jim Foote, but I recall seeing a lot of his work when I was doing events for the Rough Grouse Society. And it very, very, you know, he's obviously well-respected and, in the wildlife art, specifically when it comes to grouse. So I've got a note here, Ken, about a single shot J.C. Higgins and, of course, your <laughs> your dad's English pointers, which you, you alluded to early, earlier. But tell us a little bit about, you know, whether it's your first hunt or some of those early memories. What do you remember about going out with the old J.C. Higgins and 
hunting over I, the I could remember as if it happened today. Love it. The the first grouse I shot with that gun. It happened on October twentieth, nineteen fifty seven, when I was thirteen. The reason I know that is is that my birthday is on October twentieth, which is the opening day of pheasant season in Michigan. And I was always allowed to take that day off as a holiday, skip school, and go bird hunting with my dad. Even before my teens, I would go along with my dad, and so would my brother. And I would carry a Red Rider BB gun, and my brother carried a smokeless BB gun that didn't even shoot BBs. (laughs) And it would infuriate our father that the two of us seemed more interested in shooting field mice than following him around in the pursuit of uh, birds behind the dog. But in any event, that Christmas, it would have been, what, the Christmas of 56, when I was 12, uh, I received this uh, J.C. Higgins shotgun. Actually, it was a Harrington and Richardson shotgun, which was sold by J.C. Higgins off the rack at the local Sears Roebuck. And it was a 12-gauge, 30-inch barrel, single-hammer shotgun. And I can remember that usually when a bird went up, it would take me, it seemed like minutes, to to hold the gun and then with the the left hand and with the right hand pull that exposed hammer back. Mm -hmm. And... uh, the, the the bird in question that I remember so fondly, we were we were hunting an area and it was in um, uh, what we used to call stubble, and which means it was probably a uh, not hay but more likely um, a straw field that had been cut off and it's difficult to walk in that stuff. Uh, and um, it was always amazing how birds and we were primarily hunting pheasants, even you know. These gaudy pheasants could hunker down in that four-inch high stubble uh, and hide from you. So I was hunting with my father, and my father always carried an Remington Model 11, which was the forerunner of the Browning uh, A autoloader, the mm-hmm. humpback. Yep. Browning originally worked for Remington, and Remington sold that gun for a number of years. I still have the Remington, and I still have the Harrington and Richardson in my gun safe. In any event, our dog was working a bird, presumptively a pheasant, although there were uh, other game on this particular piece of property. And so the dog is working and, and is on point, and my father said, you go ahead, walk up in front of me, go off to the side of the dog, and go in for the flush, and take the shot. He said, I'll back you up. And so I went in, and the bird prematurely flushed, and I started to raise my gun, and I said, no, it's a hen. And in Michigan, you could only shoot cock redneck, ringnecks. Yeah. And the same thing in the Dakotas, yeah. probably even in Minnesota where you are. Oh, yeah. So I started to bring the gun down from my shoulder, and my father yelled, no, grouse, shoot. So by then, the the bird was out at least 20 yards, I would imagine, maybe more. So then I re-established my mount, shot, 
And now, remember, I've got a 12-gauge <laughs> full choke gun. <laughs> and at 35 or 40 yards, I hit the bird. I couldn't believe I hit this bird. <laughs> my reaction was, my goodness, I've, 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 I've shot a grouse. And the other thing I remember is how loud the explosion was when I shot. Just couldn't believe the, the, the volume of that sound. Yeah. And uh, years later, when I was taking people out guest hunting on a shooting preserve, now and then I would take new hunters or hunters who weren't experienced, and I would allow them to walk up or urge them to walk up on the birds. And I would lurk in the background with my 12-gauge Benelli with a modified choke and try and shoot exactly when they did uh, to help them out. And I look back on it now, and I have a sneaking suspicion that my old dad helped me out uh, on that one. I followed you. <laughs> well, it's no wonder that you remember that grouse all these years later that's uh that's quite a first grouse story <laughs> and you know on the wing where there there was no uh there was no pre-flight position or or did i read in your book you kind of politely call it the up flush there was none of that going on no 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 <laughs> this one that's why i was so stunned um you know i you're you're talking about a subject there that is 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 a matter of some some sensitivity among grouse hunters because yep. you know it's easy to be a sportsman when you're shooting well and you're finding birds. Uh, and Jim Harrison touched upon this in one of his discussions of grouse hunting. And I, I assume you and your audience know Jim Harrison, the great Michigan mm-hmm. novelist and author. Uh, I think he's most famous for writing uh, his novella short stories called Legends of the Fall. Yep. Uh, and, and Harrison has written a lot and commented a lot on uh, the ethics of grouse hunting. Uh, and he shares George Bird Evans's attitude that grouse hunting is so special that it would be a shame for both the bird and the shooter to shoot the bird on the ground. Uh, but Harrison also notes that there is a great temptation when you're not shooting well and you're unable to bag a bird to pot one. Uh, I'm not saying I never have, but it wasn't on that occasion. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, like I think I think the way you put it is you know some sensitivity depending on who you talk to, and I don't think you and I got into this, but the listeners know well that you know I got my start grouse hunting, or at least listeners that have been listening for a long time. You know, in northern Minnesota, it's not. Definitely not uncommon for folks to shoot their first, and and sometimes a lot of the a lot of first grouse, you know, on the ground. That's well, as I say in my book, uh, Grouse Points. If you're going to excuse somebody, you can excuse a new hunter, right? Uh, you can excuse uh, an old hunter who, who can almost <laughs> no longer walk. What are you telling us here, Ken? Uh, and you can excuse, you know. Uh, inexperienced hunters, but it's a bad habit, and uh, I don't think there's much. Um, you know, I really believe that a that a dedicated grouse hunter has a hard time doing that because it's like you can't talk about it. It's like murdering somebody. 
you know, it's pretty hard to describe a great grouse shot when you shot them in the middle of the road from an unwound window in your car. Right. Yeah, right now, yeah. I, I do note in my book there is a section called, I don't know, what's it called? Uh, road Hunters and um, Pot Shooters or something like that. Yeah. And, and you know, in the UP, there's a long history and tradition, and even in the lower. And as I noted, of people who carry shotguns to harvest dinner. Yeah. They're, they're not in the business of trying to make artful shots behind graceful English setters. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a rabbit or a grouse or, in some instances, a deer. Uh, if it can put meat on the table, they're going to do it. Uh, and over the years, I've noticed that, you know, in, in Michigan, the one area where there seems to be social stigma in meat hunting is turkeys. You, you talk to folks that live in northern Michigan, and, and most of them have been involved in road hunting. Uh, most of them have maybe shot a deer in their backyard when they were hungry. But but most of them also think there's something untoward in shooting a turkey. I don't know why. Hmm. There's an old saying in the UP, how do you know that somebody's going to go grouse hunting? They walk into a bar and say, give me a case of hams. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but then, it's, then it's partridge hunting, isn't it, Ken? Yeah, you know, in Michigan... That term's not as well used? No, in Michigan it's just mostly birds. Okay, okay. This is a true story about birds. <laughs> I was once hunting uh, near the Manistee River. You know, everybody in Michigan knows about the, the D Ward area, and I was hunting in the D Ward area with my brother, and and we're not doing too well, and we're going down a two track, and coming at us is several young people on dirt bikes, and this is quite a while ago, and there weren't that many dirt bikes out there, so we stopped. And one of them says, what are you guys doing? And we said, well, we're, we're bird hunting. And the guy says, you are? He said, well, we saw one. And I said, well, where? He said, back there. There, were, there was a whole flock of them. They, they looked like starlings. Uh, so not everybody understands bird hunting is grouse hunting, but usually among grouse hunters in Michigan, they'll be bird hunting. They won't be partridge hunting or patridge yeah. hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's hard to paint a broad stroke when it comes to, or at least I, I can speak from my experience, like when it comes to shooting grouse on the ground, I have no interest in it anymore. It's just, that's, that's sort of how my bird hunting has evolved, I guess. But one thing I do think about looking back is when I was growing up hunting and doing that, we did not have a dog and seeing what I've seen now, as far as like shooting at birds and having the dog recover a bird that you maybe didn't even think you hit, you know, I, I guess I just, maybe it's just, I'm justifying it in my mind, but I know I didn't lose many birds back then. And I guess I'm, I'm at peace with that. Well, you know, I think I have always hunted behind dogs. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the great grouse writers was, um, uh, Frank Woolner, yep. who wrote Grouse and Grouse Hunting. As I note in my book, Woolner ridiculed bird dogs and people who hunted behind bird dogs. Uh, at one point in one of his books, and I quote him in Grouse Points, he said, you know, grouse dogs just 
discombobulate a good grouse hunt. And so there are a good number of people who think actually grouse hunting is more productive without a dog. And I think if you have a bad dog, that's very true. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if you have a dog that's running willy-nilly out of control, bumping birds, you're better off by yourself. Uh, by like token, if you have a dog that is a you know a boot healer and is only five feet away from you, you may be better off by yourself. Now I'm, you know, people who have a decent bird dog have something special, and to me, uh, the dogs have been what 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 bird hunting is all about. And I and I think you you mentioned this in one of our um, uh, pre presentation discussions. Yeah about how um, the book has a sensitivity for dogs. And, and part of that sensitivity is, is that you have to hunt enough in order to have a decent dog. The average person can probably have an average dog and get on birds and get on grouse and get some points and maybe some flushes. But the difficulty is... Grouse hunting isn't just finding the bird. Grouse hunting is the dog managing or working the bird after the dog has discovered the presence of a bird. And that's where there is a why in the road among dogs. And that's where bird dogs are on one side and grouse dogs are on the other side of the why in the road. Which gets us to a, a real issue that we're confronting now in these times. Most of the hunters I know all have dogs, and they all hunt for the dog work. Uh, Shooting birds is secondary. The most important thing is can you get your dog into some birds? Can you see the dog work? And with the reduced numbers of grouse due to the decline in populations, due to forestry issues, and due to management issues, it becomes harder and harder to train a grouse dog and to have a decent grouse dog. Grouse dogs become grouse dogs if they hunt grouse. The fewer grouse we have, the fewer opportunities for your dog to learn. So it's getting harder and harder to develop a good grouse dog. Yep, that's a great point. I don't know if that was responsive to your question. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't even know that I really asked you a question. I think I was, yeah. I was saying something about shooting grouse on the ground, and <laughs> here, we are, here we are, Ken. Well, the book makes the point in, 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 you know, ground shooters and what, what did Woolner say? They should be hung by their testicles. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I quote Frank Woolner saying uh, ground shooters should be hung by their testicles. He said that in uh, his first book. That's and pretty indeed, strong-handed. George, George Bird Evans, with his refined Southern gentility, said they were persons of dubious character. <laughs> Uh, You know, to which I have friends in the UP would say, well, how hungry are you? Right. Yeah, Yeah, it's not a a one-size. It's it's a gray area. Yeah, yeah. But I I think we all want to be principled, dedicated grouse hunters. Right. And the more we emphasize dog work, and that was the basis for my kind of stream of consciousness discussion about how dog work was the in my view, the be-all and end-all of grouse hunting. If what you're in it for is the dog work, uh, you know, the kill isn't all that interesting to the dog if you've done it in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah. And yeah, like you said, I mean, even, even a missed bird, if you've got, you know, it's, it's frustrating when you miss a bird over great dog work, but you still have the great dog work, right? Yeah. And, and you may have another chance, which, you know, gets into the whole issue of going after reflushes versus not going after them. Now, I don't, I, I'm not recalling specifically any conversation, not saying that it wasn't in the book, but what is your, what is your, I've been asking a bunch of people that over the last few months because of something I read in the George Bird Evans book, as far as pursuing reflushes, is that something you do intentionally? Do you do it every once in a while? Do you not do it at all? What, what's your thought on that? Um, I guess my answer is it depends. Okay. Yep. And, and that's always been my answer. And this is what it depends on. Reflushes are harder uh, to take advantage of than original flushes for a number of reasons. One, the bird is spooked uh, and isn't going to hold. Number two, if the bird has flown any distance, uh, the bird can be wing-washed, meaning that if it goes through the air, the air will dissipate some of the scent around the bird so that when the bird comes down and sits again, the bird has been washed by the air, making it even harder for the dog to find it the second time. And it hasn't been sitting in that spot for any length of time. That's so right. You don't, you don't have just, a pool of scent. Yeah. There's not a pool of scent around him or it. And it just washed itself through the air when it landed there. So it's, it's, it's a tough find for a dog. And also when the dog does find it, the bird's probably just going to just run, probably run away again. You know, in Michigan, our, we, we learned that after about the first three weeks of the season, at least the birds learn that if you fly, you die. Mm. Uh, so the second flushes are, Usually, they're not going to fly again. They're going to run again rather than fly. But you have to think about, well, what, here, here are the other variables. How does going off on a, what I call a frolicking detour, chasing a bird, how does that fit into your overall strategic plan yep. of where you planned to leave, where did you plan to arrive at, and how did you plan to get there? Uh, is it going to really throw things off? Also, what time of the day is it? It's one thing to go chasing after a bird willy-nilly, and you can get caught up in reflushes. You have one, you have two, you have three, and then all of a sudden an hour and a half's gone by, and you're about a half a mile away from where you thought you were before. And so there can be serious consequences of chasing a reflush bird about a half hour before dusk. So... Maybe you don't want to be chasing birds in the second part of the day. Sure. Maybe in the morning when you have plenty of daylight and you're not tired, you want to do it. Uh, thirdly, um, are you secure in finding your way back? You know, is your, is your compass working? Uh, do you have your GPS readings? Yep. Uh, are you going to be discombobulated by going off on a spontaneous jaunt? Can you figure out how to get back to where you want to be. And then it's, I think, a matter of just looking at where the bird went, what kind of cover it went into, and, and other surrounding variables, maybe including not only the cover, but, but wind. Yeah. Will you be going into the wind if you chase him? Or is the wind at your back? Um, all those things, I mean, should, you know, enter into the mix in determining whether or not we want to chase this one or not. Yeah, or and perhaps even... 
is that the fifth grouse you've seen of the day, or is that the first yeah, one you've seen absolutely. after three well, hours? My view is, there, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Nick. Again, um, if you've hunted all day, you know, if you hunted three hours and you haven't, you haven't been on a bird and it's your first one, well, then, I mean, that's an obvious major factor to be computed in. Yeah. We finally found a bird, and we're going to abandon that bird <laughs> just because we, we want to get over to the Whiskey River Bridge by a certain time? <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's another factor for doing it. But, you know, you got to be there. And I think each each instance is uh, unique on its own facts. Yeah. yeah I think it depends as a But as I have a, to tell you. Answer there. Yeah. Personally, I'm a bird chaser. Uh, now, I'm less of a bird chaser now. I mean, I'm 77 years old. But it was one of the major bones of contention between my brother and me all the years we hunted is that he did not like chasing birds. Uh, he was structure-oriented. Uh, and both of us have, have historically had a rotten sense of direction. And you're more likely to get turned around when you're off on a, on a frolicking detour. Yeah. So, uh, but, but what we would do is we would negotiate and he would say, fine, you can have a half hour. That's it. Then we're going to turn around and come back. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I don't know. I, I, a lot of what you say, I'm, I'm sort of nodding my head in agreement. And again, there are so many factors, so many variables and, for the most part, I think, yeah, I'm usually more committed to my, the route or the objective, you know, that I have in mind. And I'm also given where I hunt and live. I also, it's usually not a ridiculous thing to expect to find another one. Right. So I'd rather just start fresh and find it. Well, you live, you're fortunate enough to live in Minnesota. And I think, I think at the moment that remains God's country when it comes to grouse. I don't know. I think Michigan's pretty good, Ken. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. We could go back and forth on that one all day. Uh, total side note here, but I jotted this down earlier. You mentioned something. with We were talking about attorneys and, and writing books. If I were to mention the name Charles Cutter or Charles McElravey to you, would that ring a bell at all? No. Oh, okay. He's uh, He is another author that I interviewed, uh, I think it was last year, maybe going back a while, but he's got a he's a Michigan Michigan guy. And I believe he's on the board of Pheasants Forever for a long time. Upland Hunter, but he's written, uh, he has a series of books. They're murder mystery books about a, a lawyer, Burr Lafayette. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to send you the links to him. If no, I'd, I'd love to find it. Yeah. Um, There's, there, you know, I think, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that we, we talked about this in the interview, but his books are very, very Michigan oriented, so much mm-hmm. so that he, he even says that, you know, Michigan kind of becomes a character in the story. And even me, a Minnesota guy, I just enjoyed it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, speaking of lawyers who have written books about bird hunting, I have a great uh, admiration for uh, uh, Lundergan's book. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, chase this. What is it called? Hunting, Follow, hunting the sun. Hunting the sun. Yep. Yeah. And there, he's got I, I thought, and lesser gods. Yeah. I, I don't. You know, it's that book that I really liked a That's lot. That's the most and well then, known. Then there's a guy out in, um, I think he's in Idaho. Andy. Andy Wayman. Yep. Wayman, him. Yep. who has written some books. Yep. Um, and um, you lawyers, yeah, you're bird hunting and book writing. I suppose it fits well, though. As I said, lawyers are writers, <laughs> yep. and lawyers are storytellers. Yep. 
Matt Soberg, the editor of Covey Rise. I interviewed him while he's a. Oh, he's I a, didn't know that. Yeah, he's I a former know. former lawyer, yeah. now magazine. He was yeah. a longtime editor of the Rough Grouse Society magazine. Yeah, yeah. we call him recovering lawyer. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Exactly. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Uh, all right. We've, I, I took so many notes from the book, and there's a bunch of things that we could get into. We, we certainly won't have time to go through them all. And obviously the hope is that folks get interested in our conversation here and, and want to check out their book. If they, they enjoy this, they will definitely uh, enjoy many of the stories in the book. But I, let, let's talk about – this is an idea you talk about in the book about – Aging as a grouse hunter, you know, and, and you've got the perfect or at least a great example of you got started in this very young, you took a break, maybe school, that kind of thing, but came back to it. And now you've been a lifelong bird hunter, but you talk about sort of the challenges slash opportunities or perspective thinking about mm-hmm. grouse hunting as you get older. So share a little bit about that, like your experience and just kind of the stuff that you share with folks in the book. You know, I start out with the fundamental proposition that, um, getting back to uh, Jim Harrison, who I think a lot of, and Harrison said that um, we 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 change so that we can continue. And Harrison was talking about his uh, rather uh, high lifestyle, mm, yes. and uh, what he was saying was is that he had to tone it down if he wanted to continue to do it at all. And so none of us can do it the way, you know, we did. And number one, you can't hunt grouse unless you're in good physical shape. And, you know, you can talk about, well, I'll just walk the tote roads or I'll just go down the two track. The problem is when you're hunting behind dogs, the dogs don't limit themselves to being out on the road or the two track. And somebody's got to walk in 20, 30 yards and flush a grouse. Uh, or you can become a road hunter and just in solitude walk two tracks and paths at dusk, and you can probably do very well, and you go at your own pace. Yep. But I'm talking about hunting behind dogs. If you're going to hunt behind dogs, you've got to be in good enough shape that you can get to the dog uh, and, and handle it. Uh, that means you've got to be able to walk which means you can't wait until, you know, two weeks before the opening of the bird seasons to start going on little jogs and getting ready. Uh, So you have to pay a lot more attention to your physical health, and balance is very, very important. 
uh, older hunters have to work on their balance. And this last hunt uh, up in the UP in the third week of October, I was with my son Jordan. I walked in on a on, on, on what was a, a, a point by uh, one of my current setters, uh, Max, and I tripped over a stump and I fell and I tore the rotator cuff of my right arm. Ouch. And I broke, uh, severely cracked the stock on one of my favorite uh, bird guns. I And I've been working on my balance, so I have to continue to do that. And um, I'm also working on rehabbing my shoulder. Which, so, uh, which shoulder was it? My right shoulder. Right shoulder, the one you yeah. shoot off of? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So in any event, A, you've got to, you've got to be in shape, and B, you have to adjust your attitude. Yeah. You, 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 you can't be frustrated. And, and a lot of my contemporaries have quit hunting or have become uh, kind of uh, dissolute about it because it's not the way it was, not only because they can't do what they couldn't do before, but because uh, it doesn't seem like there are as many birds, as many points, but you have to make adjustments and take it for what you can get. And, you know, even with the limitations we have as we get older, you know, a bad day of bird hunting's still better than a good day of almost anything else. Mm. Yep. I think I think so much in life is at least a lot of the frust- frustration cause, and I mean specifically when it comes to hunting or bird dogs, it's just sort of like false expectation setting or, you know, having unrealistic expectations with sort of the either the time or the work or the planning investment on that you put into it. Again, be realistic about what to expect and then don't beat yourself up about it afterwards, right? I think your your point about I think you partially intimated about the relationship between bird hunters and their dogs and are sometimes heightened expectations and our heightened desire for perfectionism. Right. Uh, it, 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 I, I make note of a guy I bought one of my first bird dogs from was a dog trainer uh, who was up around um, St. Helen, uh, Terry Dupuy, who, who trained grouse dogs and field trial dogs. And he wrote a book that I reference in my appendix. And in his book, he says, you know, if you're a perfectionist, Forget grouse dogs and grouse hunting. And that's pretty apt advice. You know, all you can do is, you know, try and get the most you can out of it. And there are going to be good days and bad days. Yep. Terry Dupuy, page nine. I, I had jotted that down. Do you, do you recall, like, do you know if that book is, I didn't look for it. Do you know if that book is still? You know, that book is a little four by six, uh, about a 80 page okay. loose leaf book that's bound. And um, he, it, it went out of publication, and interestingly, I, I sent Terry a copy of my book. I hadn't talked to Terry in 20 years, and I sent him my copy of my book, and he gave me a call, uh, and uh, he, he has for sale uh, copies of his, uh, of, of, of his book. Okay. Uh, and I have his address there, but I'll tell you who he is. There, there was the, uh, the Sonic... Dog beeper? Are you familiar with that collar? Uh, a, I believe I've heard of it. It's it's a very low tone beeper collar, yep. and it kind of sounds like a low grunt rather than a it going like that. Hmm. And Terry developed that beeper, 
and uh, he and he has a a website page, I believe, for Sonic Beeper, but he doesn't sell a beeper anymore because the diaphragm that was in the beeper involved getting some materials that were put on uh, some uh, State Department uh, list against importation. Mm. This is his story that I heard. I don't know if it's true or not. But in any event, he is around and he has those books. Uh, I'm not sure how to get in touch with him. But he still lives in Blanchard, Michigan. Okay. And his book deals with the first three years of having a grouse dog. Now, you're, I was going to say, you're from Minnesota, and I'm sure there are a lot of great dog trainers up there as well. Oh, yeah. We've got a, we've got a bunch, and, and I've interviewed a number of them on the show before. I mean, that's one thing, you know, one thing today we have access to all kinds of information. And that it reminds me of, I, I think maybe the first time I read the words on X hunt in print in a book or in, or in your book, you actually mentioned that in some of your notes and resources for kind of that more of that how to perspective. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit in the sense of, you know, we talked about somebody who's been grouse hunting for a long time and things to think about as they're getting older. But a lot of things in this book, as we mentioned early on in the interview, are really good, I thought, and this is me speaking, but very good common sense related when it comes to grouse hunting etiquette. Some of that gray area, some of the things that if you're just walking into this fresh, you might not know about the etiquette around going back to somebody's cover or say parking right next to somebody on the road and jumping into the cover right after him, that kind of thing. I, there's the whole book is sprinkled with yeah. information in that regard. That was not by uh, happenstance. Yeah. Um, as I said, in the introduction of the book, one of the things I hoped to accomplish was to provide uh, some points about grouse hunting for new entrants that they'll maybe not have to learn the hard way like everybody else, given the fact that a lot of new entrants just don't have the, the family reference points and the and, and, and the outdoor mentors that many of us had when we were growing up. A lot of the points in the book are really about, it's not a how-to-do-it book. And, and, you know, this is the type of gun you should have, right. and this is the type of load you want for shotgun shells, and the, which vest is better, and all that stuff. But it, it isn't a how-to-do-it, but it's it's about how to properly conduct yourself and how to have proper relationships, relationships with other hunters, with your dog, with the birds, uh, and, and, and really with the woods and the cover and the terrain itself. And it's everything from, you know, how to interact with other hunters, uh, how to interact with your dog, how to handle yourself when your dog's not doing well. Uh, how to tone down your expectations about what you think a dog should or should not be doing, how to finally get into the point where you realize that, you know, the dog may know more than you. And the other thing is paring back on your goals, particularly when it comes to dogs. The basic fundamentals of handling a dog are, are pretty simple and pretty straightforward. And if you can get mastery of those, that is, if you can get a dog that will come when it's called and will come back and check in on you and hold a point and maybe not retrieve, but at least go to a dead bird and find it, yep. you know, that 
is basic. Then the next step is, can you get a dog that works birds along with it? But so this book is designed in part to talk about the little things. Uh, you know, how do you deal with other hunters when you're entering into a common field? How do you deal with bow hunters when you stumble onto each other? Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's a matter of etiquette. It's a matter of common sense. It's, it's like being taught, how do you act like a man or a woman, you know, who wants to be a dedicated, principled bird hunter? What about how to stay, how to avoid trouble in the UP? Oh, you're talking about the chapter <laughs> entitled, uh, never drink in a bar with a dirt floor. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, that stuff's all true. <laughs> and I have to tell you something, that I, that whole chapter was dramatically toned down. And, and I, I think it's hard to talk about this book without mentioning the other great impact on me in writing it, and that's my, my, my editor, uh, Art Delorier Jr. Art is a longtime editor of outdoor magazines. He started out at Country Sport up in Traverse City. Mm. Uh, he edited all of the books written by Michael McIntosh. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, he edited uh, Tom Hugler's book, A Fall of Woodcock. He edited um, uh, several books for Gene Hill. And he edited uh, Lundrigan's book, Hunting the Sun. Oh, that's quite a resume. Uh, and I stumbled on him because I I used to hunt with a guy by the name of Tony Petrello, who uh, lived up near uh, Mancelona, Michigan, and we used to hunt along the banks of the Manistee River, where he was a fishing guide. But he was also a hunting guide, and he had a great great dog of his own. He wrote a book called Ghost: Diary of a Bird Dog. But Tony passed away a number of years ago. And so when I started writing this book, I figured I needed an editor. And Tony's wife, Kate, had worked as a copy editor. And she had moved to Florida, and I called Kate. And she told me that she really wasn't an editor. She did copy. And so she referred me to Art. And Art was pretty well working full-time at Ducks Unlimited, and wasn't all that interested, but he said he'd look at my uh, manuscript, and I sent it to him, and he agreed to take it on. Uh, and uh, you know, he he has a lot to do with this, uh, so I I would be remiss to talk about this book without mentioning Art uh, and his outstanding contribution. Yeah, very cool. That's uh, obviously I didn't know it at the time, but I enjoyed many of the books that you mentioned under his. Uh resume so i think that uh that definitely played a part in how your book turned out a couple of things i i would love to hear a little bit more about the 40 year old coat <laughs> that was oh. that there's, there's a pretty detailed story in the book but i would just i would like to have you share a little bit about that here this the grouse hunter's coat yeah um yeah i grew up in a blue collar environment my dad was a working man we never spent too much time checking out the pedigrees of our pointers and um, I've never considered myself to be a member of the wax cotton set. <laughs> um, but back in the 70s, I really took a shine to, um, you know, one of those British green wax cotton jackets. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was a barber. And it had a, 
Scottish tartan lining. And, but I, I wore that jacket for years. I mean, 30 years. And it got to the point where it, it had tears in it. The zippers didn't work. The snaps on the pockets didn't work. Matter of fact, one of the pockets had no pocket. The game bag had, you know, kind of dissolved. And so my wife thought it was hideous and it smelled bad. As I say in the book, that dog, that, that, that coat had a lot of memories. And, uh, yeah. you know, that, that coat had been left in the woods for dogs to find. It had been used to carry dogs out of the woods. And on a couple of occasions, sitting in the back of the truck, it had had dogs pee all over it. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's, I, it's one of my fondest possessions. Uh, in any event, it, my wife was insistent that I, I uh, get another coat. Uh, it's not that I wore it around in suburbia like you know it was a car coat either. Right. So I went off to look at another replacement, and I couldn't find one that I really liked, but uh, the people at the Orvis store here, they they said they could ship it off to England and have it refurbished, and they did. Uh, and and so it's refurbished. Now it looks like kind of an old uh, patchwork quilt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the sleeves are a different color than the front, and, but the front is new. The only thing that's really all original is the back part, the shoulders and the back of the coat. Sure, sure, yeah. The pockets were all replaced. The buttons were replaced. The zippers were replaced. Even the lining was replaced. But they found the same identical lining. Yeah. So I I still wear that coat. You know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm a proponent of barber coats for hunting rough grouse. They, you know... They're um, they're good at warding off briars. Yep. But they don't they they're not waterproof uh, unless you're copiously applying more goop on the outside mm-hmm. of them. Uh, and and then when it does rain or it gets cold, if you have one, and you've had them for any period of time, they stiffen up and it's like wearing armor. Uh, it's like. Um, Wearing the old, um, who are the people that make the tin cloth? Filson um, tin cloth. Yeah, it's yeah. like wearing Filson when it's brand new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not recommending you run out or anyone run out and buy a coat like that from Orvis, but uh, I had it, and it's always it's been part of the fabric of uh, uh, my hunting with my dogs. And uh, who knows, maybe uh, maybe I'll have it. No, I know my wife won't bury me in it. <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I mean, I just appreciate. Like, I think you know, many bird hunters, we sort of we've all got probably got a piece of gear, whether it's a vest or something that you know has been with us through thick and thin, and they take a beating. But and so you you gain this fondness and this appreciation but, for things that do hold up, relatively yeah. speaking. Oh, you know, yeah. let me say that about this or this about that, yeah. Nick. Um, my advice is: if you find a piece of equipment mm. you really like, buy two. Yep. Uh, and, and assume it lasts for twenty years. You're probably going to have difficulty finding the same exact uh, shirt, coat, vest again. Yep. And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed at this stage of my life in that a lot of 
my equipment and a lot of my clothing either doesn't fit anymore or has become worn out. And so now I'm wearing new stuff and I look like I'm just off the boat. You know, know, who's the old guy with all the new Orvis stuff? (laughs) Guy just started hunting yesterday. Uh, Yeah, it's like I just started out hunting. And and I make the point about the same thing about shotguns. Uh, My, my, probably the the shotgun that I'm fondest of is, is, uh, as I mentioned in uh, the book, uh, Grouse Points, uh, a 20 gauge Browning Superpose Superlight. Yep. and I've had so much work done on that over the years, you know, including stock alterations, re-bluing, re-tightening, pieces replaced. And I've had it re-blued, and I've had it the stock redone. And you look at it, and it looks almost new. It's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, so, um, but my recommendation is, is if you have equipment you like, um, uh, you know, get two. And the other thing is it's, it's it's like the ski industry. It's amazing how, you know, short skis were in vogue and mm. then long skis and then yep. they go back to short skis and then it's skis with holds in the front. and uh, But they always seem to come back to the classic design. Yeah. And it's interesting that we've seen to come back from synthetic fabrics that people are coming back to natural fabrics like wool. And you know, for your as far as talking about a frosty morn and trying to stay warm, there's nothing like wool uh, to do it. Uh, it breathes better than almost anything. I love Gore-Tex, right? But some of the natural fibers are are back in in vogue at last. You can buy them. Yeah, yeah. Back when you acquired that, that's how I was going to kind of ask you that that barber jacket. You know, I mean, we've we've come a long way in the apparel. And I feel like you can kind of have the best of both worlds now. You know what I mean? You got like sort of technical wool fabrics and uh, yeah. it's easy to get carried away and uh, go for the new shiny object. But well, but we've got I, a lot of I, options. You, you, you got to admit some of the modern day clothing is head and shoulders over what it was 30 years ago. I think. Uh, Especially when it comes to the weight, I think. that's Weight where we, yeah. and rain gear. Yeah. And breathability. Yeah. Uh, all of those things. Yeah. So. What is, what are you doing with the superposed um, broken stock? Are you getting that repaired? Is it already repaired? I had it done. I picked it up last week. Oh, uh, okay, okay. It's oh. amazing. Okay. Can I can I mention the name? Yeah, of please the do. Stock? I was going to ask you who does it. There there is a guy on the western side of the state in Mount Olive, which is near Holland, Michigan, and his name is David Vanderbrand, hmm. and he is a very high end stock maker. And uh, does stock repairs. Very, he does you know all kinds of uh, high-end doubles uh, and uh, classic side by sides, that sort of thing. And I went back to David because this, the stock on that gun was originally bet by Griffin and Howe in New York. Okay, yep. And then you know, twenty-five years later, it started to come back again. Ah, and. A guy who serves occasionally as my shooting instructor, whose name he prefers I not mention because mm. I'm not exactly an endorsement of his <laughs> he skills. He wants to keep you on the quiet list. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's, I, I, I said, oh, you coach Ken McIntyre in shooting. You know, that, that's not exactly a recommendation. But in any event, 
he sent me over to David Brand, Vandenbrand for the second bend because he's afraid it would, 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 would be broken. So years ago, David bent that stock again. Uh, and then when I, when I broke it, I was up in the UP, and an hour after I fell and broke that stock, I called David on the phone. I was almost crying. And I told him what I'd done. And it was a massive crack. And I had some cracks in it before that had been repaired. Not by him, but by someone else. Mm. And his response was, don't worry about it. He said, with today's epoxies, I can fix it if you broke it in half. Wow. So I took it to David, and not only did he fix what I did, but he went back and corrected some prior work that wasn't done quite the way it should have been done. And this gun now, you look at it, and I defy anyone to see any cracks in the stock of this gun after what he did. It's that's amazing. incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. Just amazing. I had uh, I had heard, you know, over the years, a number of, you know, you think you break a gun like that, it's over, but not necessarily. And, yeah, sounds like with with what he can so do. So anyhow, it looks better than it ever did. Yeah, that's excellent. You mentioned Isle Royal in the book, which caught my attention yes. as, you know, somehow you guys claim that, even though I'm a lot closer to it than you are, Ken, but <laughs> were you were you actually hunting up there? Or I, no, I, no, okay. no. But you were up there, and you, you were talking to hikers about grouse or something? Yeah, the, the point in this book, and, and I mentioned Isle Royal uh, in, what is it? I'm trying to find it the... It is uh, page 284. Yeah, I mean, more importantly, what's the... It's Isn't it called Where Do We Go From Here? I think it is, yeah. Yeah, chapter 37 of Grouse Points is a chapter entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And this is my take on the status of grouse hunting in Michigan uh, and that we are in an emergency mode uh, and that we need to take action if we're going to preserve uh, our heritage of bird hunting, which means we have to give a lot of attention to uh, not only management of the bird, but more importantly, management of our uh, woods and waters and uh, properly managing cover for grouse. Yeah. And I know that to a certain extent, we brought this on ourselves, that the way the Department of Natural Resources in most states work is kind of a squeaky wheel thing. They, the DNRs spend the money currying and, and developing those resources that bring in the most revenue. And right now, things like snowmobiling, ATVing, dirt biking are bringing in a lot more than grouse hunting. And grouse hunting has been kind of a stepchild, uh, particularly in light of the reduction in the level of lumbering and timbering that have gone on in our state the last decade or two. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying this is the current case. Our current DNR, I think, is doing a marvelous job uh, in trying to uh, stimulate grouse hunting, uh, get more people involved, including through their so-called GEM sites, yep. which is grouse enhanced management sites. But my point is, is that the average age of a hunter in Michigan, and I'd have to go to the book to re-get get the stats again, but the average age of a grouse hunter in Michigan is like 64. Uh, and and the, the stats on the reduction in the number of hunters per se 
we're losing hunters at a rate of about 10% a year. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we, we hit a void after the baby boomers through the millennials. We were so busy doing other things that we uh, didn't expose our, our, our offspring, our, our boys and our girls, to the woods and waters and the wonders of things like grouse hunting. Uh, indeed, the culture within grouse hunters was to the contrary. Uh, if you go to the literature and you read books by Woolner and uh, uh, Nick Sisley, Woolner at one point in his book said he was so glad that the DNR was spending all kinds of money on pheasant hunting because it would mean those people wouldn't be out disturbing his grouse. Mm-hmm. And Sisley wrote a piece saying his fear was was that with the reduction of pheasant cover, that the pheasant hunters would all turn to grouse hunting. And that would put a damper on grouse hunting. Uh, fairly um, kind of almost cultish attitudes were, were predominant upon grouse hunters in those days. And there was kind of a feeling that, you know, grouse hunting was different and you had to work hard to learn your trade. And once you learn your trade, it was kind of like being part of a guild. And mm. the less said about it to others who weren't in the guild, the better. Uh we're now at a point where the times are changing and we have to get more people involved. Uh, and that was my point, and I, this may seem rather a long way around the rosemary bush, but I took this trip to Isle Royal, where I've been a number of times before, with an old and dear friend who um, suffers from some terrible post-Vietnam disability matters. Hmm. And he had kind of a, a local Michigan bucket list he wanted to do one summer. And that included going up to El, uh, Isle Royal. And for those of your listeners, Nick, who don't know Isle Royal, it is an island off the coast of uh, the northernmost part of Michigan in the UP, yep. off the coast of Calumet. And um, it is a, a totally uh, wild island, best known for... Uh, wolves uh, and moose yep. and their constant battle as to who is succeeding and who's dying out. Correct, yeah. Uh, and very few people would go there, photographers and hardcore outdoors people. They, they now have some trails that go around the island and there is a, a restaurant, I think it may even have a couple of rooms. Really? But uh, yeah, there's a there's a building there now, and people come from all over the world. It's the it's the least used federal park, but the people come from everywhere to hike Isle Royal. If, if you're into hiking and camping, and uh, they come from everywhere, and by and large, they're they're millennial types, and you know you, you couldn't help but engage in conversation with these folks and a lot of them were amazed that a couple of old coots were up walking these trails one of whom could barely walk (laughs) and uh so you know we'd talk to these kids and they'd ask us what we did and we talked about grouse hunting and the general reaction was one of sounds uh amazing sounds like you don't kill almost anything and you have to work like hell and you know spend yourself going through the woods and 
sounds like a good time. And, and the idea of following dogs, what a novel concept. Yeah. But my point is, is that the interest in young people in the outdoors, the interest of young people in natural resources is there. Uh, I see it in fishing. Yeah. Uh, my daughter, uh, who, by the way, owns two, two English setters, but is not a bird hunter, is an ardent fisherman or fisher person or fisher. Yeah. There are all kinds of young folks involved in fishing, camping, and outdoors activities. So the, 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 the embers are there to just, if they can be enhanced, you know, and learn about bird hunting, there'll be more bird hunters. And if there are more bird hunters, there'll be more time spent by the DNR and others on forestry and management. And if that happens, then the grouse themselves will become healthier and more abundant. And if that happens, our dogs will be more happy. And when our dogs are more happy, we'll be happy. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, as you were talking, I, I have never been to Isle Royale. I've, I've kind of feel like it's uh it should be on my bucket list. I'm, I'm familiar with it. I mean, it's, it's not a lot of people, you can go up the North shore of Minnesota and you can, I mean, you can take a, a moderately sized boat across on a nice day. You can buzz across and be over there. And I've got friends that go fishing up there. I just looking at, I'm always amazed at just the size of the Island. And I mean, it's, 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 I can't remember exactly how long it is, but I mean, it's miles long and there's lakes, there's, there's big lakes on the Island. I mean, it's incredible. And here it is in the middle of Lake Superior, but I just, <laughs> I had to mention this. I, I zoomed in and Google is, Google has started, you know, they'll put shipwrecks, they'll put pins on shipwrecks, and I zoom in, it's on the south, southwest portion of Isle Royale, there's a SS America shipwreck, shipwreck, and I'm zooming in, and you can actually see the bow or the stern of this boat on the bottom of the waters. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I'd never seen that, but that's, uh, we could probably relate that to uh, the advancements in satellite imagery for scouting grouse covers and stuff, but that's, uh, that's another conversation for, for another day. There's so much, so much more of, of the conversation that we had here today, Ken, in the book. Um, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, we could, we could go on and on. I, I certainly want to encourage folks to check it out. It's, uh, um, I kind of commented on it earlier, but it's a, it's a great, you know, it's a great book to be reading this time of year, entertaining, enjoyable, but at, at the end of the day is it, it is informative. And if there are folks out there listening that find themselves kind of in that category of newer grouse hunter, or you're, you're wanting to learn more about grouse hunting and what it's all about and get some perspective, this Ken's book would be a great place to start. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff in there. Where would be the best place for people to go to perhaps learn more about your book, Ken, and maybe pick up a copy? Number one, they can go on Amazon.com. Okay. Yep. It's available there. It's available for $35, and that includes shipping. Perfect. Or secondly, they can go to Tamarack Enterprises at gmail.com and indicate they want to purchase the book and... Um, I'll send them the book and they can send me a check for $35. Got it. Links to, I'll have links to both of those in the yeah. show notes. And, and you mentioned uh, a possible review. Do you know Glenn Blackwood, the uh, yes. RGS rep from Michigan? Yep. And the, uh, Glenn has indicated to me that um, he believes there may be a review of the book coming out in the next edition 
of RGS Cover Magazine, which is what in February or March, okay. I understand. Yeah, so I maybe maybe spoiled that earlier in the episode, but yes. No, I I don't I think it's I'm I'm delighted to heard that they're going to do it yes yeah yeah glenn uh you know i haven't i have I've yet to have glenn on this podcast it's kind of been on on the list for a while i i need to do that he's you know he's he's the book guy i've i if, bought uh you mentioned country sport press i bought my copies of bear november days and come october about both of those from glenn back blackwood years back at a rough grouse society event his his store uh glenn has an amazing collection of um, bird hunting and fly fishing books, mm, yep. uh, and going from high end, very very rare, expensive books to copies of recent publications, and he's also probably the most knowledgeable guy in this area of Michigan about uh, hunting and fishing books. Yep. Plus, he's the area rep for the Rough Grouse Society. Indeed he must he be a very busy guy. <laughs> I can I can only imagine. Yeah, I can only imagine. All right, so I had to ask you this, Ken. As as somebody that's been doing rough grouse hunting for this long, you know, 50 odd years or so, give or take. We heard at, about at least one of your favorite guns earlier, a 20 gauge Browning Superlight. I was I had my heart set on trying to find a a Browning Superlight for quite a while. I settled on one of the Satori Upland Specials, which which is almost the same, but it had the twenty four inch barrels. I still have that gun. But anyways, what is your go to rough grouse load? Uh, well, first of all, I, I want to comment on the superposed Satori. Okay, if you go to um, mount each of those guns, I think you'll sense a different feel they it just they're the the configuration is the same they look the same but it's amazing the number of people particularly with the superposed that say i like it or i don't like it whereas almost everybody that shoots a satori likes it Hmm. so i have noticed this over the years and the number of people who've said you know i had i had a superposed and i i didn't didn't care for the way it mounted uh, but as to uh, what you're talking about, uh, logistics and shooting and yeah, loads, and yeah. that, uh, my typical grouse load is federal premium, lead, copper-plated, seven and a half. All right. But if it's early in the season and, you know, when it's really just you're, – you're, I'll bring some sixes along. And I also have eights. Yeah, yeah. But the load that I shoot 90% of the time is seven and a half copper plated lead shot federal premium. I used to shoot what they called spreader loads. Yep. And they, you know, it, it, it always had visions in my head of, of a hand grenade going off or something. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I know people that shoot those. I, I read a we we talked a book about a book when um, we were off the record a while ago, and it was the coffee table book by Pero. Yeah, a passion with for all girls. of the yeah, yep. and and in there there is an interview of a Michigan grouse hunter uh, by the ta- his name was something like Tom Tom Prod- Tom Prodzik is it? Yeah, and Prodzik was a DNR guy. Yep, and. 
In the book, he notes that during his career, he shot over 3,500 grouse. Mm -hmm. And they asked him what kind of loads he shot. He shot 20-gauge, 3-inch mags. <laughs> so each to his own, I yeah, guess. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. There, I know I know many people that would cringe at, at the sound of that, but yeah. I, Tom Prodzik's, you know, his name and reputation precedes him to a certain oh, extent. Oh, he's probably yeah. the most famous grouse hunter in Michigan in the modern age. Yeah, it's. I remember uh, when the, the article came out on him as, as, you know, his detailed records and everything. It's fast. I, I have... I need to go back and read that article on A Passion for Grouse. I said I was going to do that. But uh, I, uh, you know, some people think, you know, to me, it isn't a matter of, 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 of the load as much as whether it's a 20 or a 28 or a 16 or a 12. It is uh, what do you think you can hit birds with and which gives you the best mount. Yeah. And... You know, I, some people think, well, it's not sporting to, you know, certainly if you're hunting quail, they'll tell you, well, if you're out in the south hunting in the plantations, they want 20 and 28 gauge. Mm -hmm. You hunt quail out in Oklahoma, Kansas, they'll tell you to bring a 12 gauge modified choke. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's not like getting off a wagon and walking 50 feet. Right. Uh, so I think it's a matter of what's comfortable for you. And and the load, you know, maybe time of the year. Bert Spiller in his book was talking about winter hunting and how uh, he liked to use number six because they would reach out further because you can see almost twice as far in the winter. Sure, yep. Which makes some sense. Yep. But I think, you know, if you look at the statistics kept by the Loyal Order of Dedicated Grouse Hunters, as you know, Nick, and I think you've, you've seen this and subscribed to it. Yep. The, um, the Loyal Order of Dedicated Grouse Hunters, through their, their administrator, does an annual survey of its members, and they collect information on hours hunted, days hunted, type of dog, type of gun, number of flushes, number of shots, number of kills. And they also ask for type of gun and what shot. And most people were using eights or seven and a halves. Yeah, that's pretty pretty standard. I I firmly into that category. I think I shot seven and a halves and eights all season this year. One you know, and a lot of people, well, you know, put seven and a half in your or eight in your first barrel right, and right. seven and a half in your second and you know, <laughs> number six is in your third, you know. Uh it's too confusing uh, you know, <laughs> to uh, separate your shotgun shells like that out in the bush. We certainly have a tendency to overcomplicate things. Those yeah. are the kinds of debates that keep us busy we're, all year we're long. Not as, we're not as bad as fly fishermen. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's another world entirely, but I guess one that I, maybe I intentionally sort of keep myself, for the most part, out of. I, uh, I've got some gear, but that's about it. I can't even call myself a fly fisherman. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm the I'm a kind of a hacker. I like my son's a pretty good fisherman, so yeah. is my daughter, but I'm not uh I'm not particularly good at it. So, 76 years old did I get that right, Ken? Uh 77, 77. I'll be 78 next October 20th. And planning to hunt fall of 2022? Yeah, I just uh, re-up my reservations uh at the place that we've been staying up in the UP. Good for you. Uh, I stayed there for a good, a good, good number of years, and then uh, when my brother died, I stopped staying there, and I lost my spot. And uh, it's a place that has about five cabins, 
and this last, I got in two seasons ago. I was waitlisted for a while. Uh, hunted other places, but I've always enjoyed hunting out of this place because there's it's all it's all bird hunters. And this last time we were up, there were bird hunters from there were five cabins, and there were hunters from uh, Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and I think I think we were the only ones from Michigan. Hmm. Yeah, we were the only ones from Michigan. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, you, you share. I asked you that in the sense that you've been. You know, I certainly hope to be to still be doing this when I'm your age, Ken. If I if I'm so fortunate, and I'm sure I'm not doing it as hard and fast as you are. <laughs> well, well, you've you've done plenty of it. I'm, yeah. I'm sure of that, Ken. <laughs> uh, it hasn't lost its uh, you know its appeal to you, which is the point I'm driving at here. No, I still have the passion. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty cool. Well, Ken, I've, t- I've taken up much more of your time than I said I would today. I really appreciate it. It was a, it was a great, enjoyable conversation. Uh, I'm sure the listeners enjoyed it. And again, if they liked what they heard here and they want to hear more tales from Ken, check it out. The book, Grouse Points, the artwork, the stories, it's all there. It's a great, great read, especially this time of year. Go check that out. I'll put links in the show notes. Ken, thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with me and the listeners on the Birdshot podcast. I really appreciate it. Nick, my thanks to you. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.